Well, welcome everybody. I'm so glad you're here. Uh, my name is Vince Horn, and together with Dida Cuts, we're here to host our first public Buddhist Geeks Network event. Actually, Stuart, this is a first for us. And um, the christening. This is the christening, and of course, we couldn't start any better than uh, exploring Buddhism and aliens. So really excited to be introducing an old friend, and I would call Stuart a mentor and a guide, someone I've learned a tremendous amount from over the years, um, and just a hilarious, uh, fucked up human, just like the rest of us. <laughs> I'll take it. Put it on the headstone. <laughs> um, in terms of in terms of background, uh, to get a little more detailed, you know, Stuart Stuart's done a lot of things um, that are worth mentioning here. Um, when I first met Stuart, he was um, touring, I think maybe full time as a um, a musician. Um, he's released a, I don't even know how many albums at this point. Um, he's a writer, director, comedian, uh, podcaster. Um, definitely check out his artists and aliens podcast as that's extremely apropos to this conversation. And Stuart, you're a longtime Zen practitioner, though I don't know if you still identify with Zen, <laughs> but uh, I know your background is rich. That. Okay, great. Awesome. So uh, without uh, any more blathering from me, I'd like to uh, invite Stuart to take the mic and uh, get us going on this journey. Thank you, Stuart. Thank you, brother. Yeah. So. Um, to begin with, practitioner was, yeah, I was a long time Zen practitioner, and that morphed in the last few years. And I think that's something that we can circle back to um, when we get into the question and answer portion of this. So to begin with, the, the way that I got into this field and how it intersects with Buddhism. Um, it's been a, a really interesting track and full circle that has come around from initially entering into the path on Buddhism and taking up with sincerity a commitment to the Bodhisattva's vow and concerning oneself oneself with the liberation of all beings, and then um, gradually migrating into this experiential component of actually encountering some of these other beings. So in a sense, losing the luxury of the metaphorical conception of the universe um, is not just a depiction of how richly populated our reality is, but becoming acquainted in a face-to-face -face fashion with some of these non-human entities. And that is where the threshold, the fulcrum crossed over, became more about working in a pragmatic utilitarian fashion with trying to understand and come to peace with the fact that the public-facing narrative that we have around the anomalous, the liminal, is not in proportion to or commensurate with 
the work that's actually being done. So for better or worse, one of the acquaintances that's transpired for me in the last few years has been becoming acquainted with not only through my own experiences, the experiences of others, you know, we formed this community called the Experiencer Group, which is now um, well over 1,500 members we've had come through. And those experiences include contact with non-human entities, include near-death experiences, include all variety of anomalous and peripheral exotic types of states and events. And by proxy, if we were to make a sequence of this, where my own personal experiences began to intersect with Buddhism through contact with these non-human entities, and then by extension, I began to become acquainted with hundreds and hundreds of other experiencers from all over the world, from all types of cultures, from every demographic and strata that we can think of human beings as inhabiting and presencing. Um, by extension from that, becoming acquainted with the nature of work that's been done behind the scenes, behind the curtains. And so when I talk about the variability or the divergence, the disparity, let's say, between the public-facing narrative, which on any given day might be the behavior of Tic Tacs around our military uh, and military industrial complex, let's say, versus what the reality is of what's going on behind the scenes. There's a, a chasm in this proportion. 95% um, of what is being done, the work that's being done and is transpiring behind the scenes is nowhere present in the public facing narrative. And that's understandable for many reasons. But suffice to say, like, the community of experiencers doesn't have the luxury of debating and exploring the ontological status of non-human entities because they've already been in a long-term relationship with them, oftentimes for their entire lifetime. And, and even more commonly, this is something that's tracked along bloodlines. This is something that's tracked along family history. We call this the genealogy of the strange in the work that I do, which is that if you find an experiencer who's had multiple encounters, if you find someone who's an abductee, typically the ratio of probability that their family is involved in this and that they're also intergenerationally uh, implicated goes up exponentially. So the experiencer community is living in two realities. They're living in the conventional consensus reality in which they navigate jobs as postmen and as housewives and grocery workers and anything you can think of. And they're simultaneously navigating lives as um, long-term, there's a long-term relationship that they're in with anomalous and often non-human entities. So I'm speaking in really broad terms here. I'd like to start with a broad brushes. And then when we get into a QA and a later, we can get into any of the details or reads that anyone would like to. Uh, but I would like to start with this part, which is that there's very little use currently in trying to track or inform oneself with what that public-facing narrative 
has been for the last half century to century. In fact, for 50 plus years, there has been a deep engagement by necessity. And um, I would also say that one of the surprises for me, one of the things that I didn't anticipate finding myself feeling is a great sense of empathy for the human beings who have been burdened, um, tasked with the role of managing this very unmanageable dynamic in which for the moment, there's not a great number of good moves. There's not a great number of good options for human beings to make in response to this. It's an incredibly multidimensional, kaleidoscopic enigma that we are contending with here. And this includes everything from corporeal aliens from distant locales, which I think are probably a lower percentage of what's happening to interdimensionals, etheric astral entities. Some of our local um, neighbors who have not incarnated as human beings, but nonetheless are native to our planet and our realm. Um, This would include everything from the Fae realm to what is occurring at Skinwalker Ranch. We've got discarnate beings who have previously incarnated as human beings, possibly even such far-flung things as breakaway human civilizations, tulpas, egregores, and then a a whole other host of, of masquerading entities, which sometimes present themselves to be something that they're not. And the taxonomy that we're dealing with here actually interestingly accords with a lot of, for instance, our oldest um, lineages and traditions, Vajrayana Buddhism. Great example. Um, another curveball that that I found like coming full circle in part was, you know, having been a Buddhist practitioner and acquainted myself with the cosmology in which we seek with our hearts and souls to obtain the liberation of all beings, and then finding that there actually is a profusion of them here, intimately mingled with us historically, and perhaps more acutely in the last half century, that there have, you know, this is like sort of rediscovering the wheel thing where you find like, oh, Vajrayana was actually dealing with this 500 years ago. There's there's been maps and cartography and methodologies in place. And in fact, something as um, seemingly modern as a CE5 event in which these entities can be called in, craft can be called in, that exists within these lineages. And then even going back further into Bonn and various shamanic traditions. And in a weird, ironic way, this is something that we've actually known and been good at and had practices in place for for many millennia, but we have a current, from my point of view, last few centuries in amnesia that's setting in, which is, in my opinion, again, attendant to our increasing materialism and the advent of the disenchantment that we've been noticing in the past few centuries. And that weirdly, we're sort of cutting our own hamstrings. So that one of the things that can happen sometimes with our traditions is a kind of bleaching 
where we seek to eradicate or extricate the messier, more like from a modern point of view, problematic or yeah, just the the dicier end of the spectrum that comes with some of these traditions. However, what I personally have been noting is that some of that dicier end of the spectrum is the technology, methodology, and epistemologies that know what to do and how to formulate a more effective response to our plurality, this great plurality of these beings, some which are, I'm going to shut my door here one sec. Yeah. Can I interrupt you real quickly? Yeah, yeah. There yeah. are um, a couple terms you said that maybe not everyone here is familiar with, for instance, CE5. Yes. So a CE5. And also you've heard the Tic Tacs. And okay, great. Some people may not know. Thank so, you. Thank you. And please feel free mm-hmm. to interject at any time, like, you know, step in. And uh, thank you for that, Dita. CE5 just means contact mm-hmm. event five. So it's a contact protocol popularized by this gentleman, Stephen Greer, who was also at the head of an um, effort in the 80s and 90s called the Disclosure Project. CE5 is a set of protocols where um, a lot of this would be familiar basically to meditation practitioners as a way of using consciousness to invite and interact with non-human intelligences and their modes of conveyance. So it's, it's been formalized. There's a set of protocols. And if you enact these protocols with some degree of consistency, then you reliably can have these craft and entities show up. That's what a CE5 is. It's a contact protocol popularized by Stephen Greer, although utilized by a lot of folks and um, modified. And so let's put a sticky note on that because that actually, I think, also uh, connects to other considerations around sovereignty. I want to make sure that we give a good dose of attention to human sovereignty in respect to this. And the other question that you had, Dita, was remind me again, what was part two? If you could do, what were you referring to when you used the term tic-tac at the beginning? Oh, tic-tac. Great. So it, when, uh, you know, in 2017, when Leslie Kane and Ralph Blumenthal published the cover story on the New York Times, which was kind of a sea change event for this the, the New York Times, if you study it historically going back uh, to its origin, has always been a paper of debunking, discrediting. It's been uh, installed at times as an arm of some of the alphabet agencies in order to modify, control, and um, deplete the narrative in respect to these non-human entities. And in 2017, that all changed when Leslie Kane and Ralph Blumenthal wrote their series of articles, actually, it was multiples, that essentially crossed the event horizon of mainstream media to legitimize the phenomenon. The phenomenon being something utterly, totally inexplicable occurring. So Tic Tacs feature in that cross over the threshold in the sense that that was the beginning of a micro avalanche in which military, Pentagon, alphabet agencies began to break ranks 
come forward, speak publicly, and then the most legitimate paper in the Western world put its stamp on that. And the Tic Tacs, which I want to touch in on this aspect as well as part of the differential between what's going on behind the scenes and what's presented in the public-facing narrative. So in this instance, regarding Tic Tacs, you, you have people right now in the main platforms coming forward in incremental measures, pilots, military officials, folks working in certain programs saying, hey, these objects, I mean, this is literally verbatim, a quote from uh, as recently a few weeks ago, I interviewed Jim Samivan, who was a senior intelligence official at the CIA for 17, 18 years. And he has said flat out verbatim, these are not of human origin. We have never made something that can do what these objects are doing. And again, in his words, everyone with a need to know or access knows this and acknowledges that to be true. So the Tic Tacs are one profile, one morphology of these anomalous craft that, you know, for instance, the the function of Tic Tacs, they can drop 80,000 feet from outside of the atmosphere to be beside one of our nuclear carriers in less than a second. They are multi-modality. They can go underwater. They can go outside the atmosphere, move through the atmosphere. They can go in physically inexplicably move into solid mountainsides. Um, And the public-facing narrative is that these objects have antagonized and provocatively, you know, mingled, harassed, basically, our our carriers and our carrier fleets on both coasts, particularly um, most publicly known is the stuff that's going off the West Coast off of Catalina, I think that's Catalina Island. So that was part of the story that Leslie and Ralph helped to break, helped to bring forth members from the military, um, completely vetted. I mean, the vetting system the Times goes through is bonkers, but still, ratio, that's less than 5% of what is actually going on. So part of the untold story with just the Tic Tacs, which I think are the least interesting, most um, physical nuts and bolts end of this spectrum. The Tic Tacs are popularized in part because they're something that folks can get their head around in terms of uh, how our physics and cosmology functions and interprets. So even though the Tic Tacs are doing all this exotic stuff, how do they go underwater? How are they outside of the atmosphere and then back in it in less than a second? Another interesting profile point with them is that they they know the intersect plan for the fighter pilots. So the Tic Tacs somehow are obtaining the vector points before the pilots themselves have even enacted them and arrived at their destination. The Tic Tacs will be waiting for them. We might be talking a 23-mile interval, and these Tic Tacs are waiting for them. It doesn't matter where they go or how they try to disrupt that anticipation. So there's all these inexplicable 
profile points with them. But the Tic Tacs are very much on the nuts and bolts end of the spectrum. And I feel like they've been popularized. I, I could say this with some confidence. The reason that this narrative has led with that kind of the range of the phenomenon is that people can comprehend it. And that is the shallow end of the pool. And what really gets complicated and uncomfortable and unworkable, and this circles back to why I have empathy for these folks working in these agencies, the branches of our military, the alphabets, is that as soon as you start to look and hold your attention with some sustain, as they have for 50 plus years, all of this other messy stuff starts to come to the fore. For instance, pilots who have interacted with these Tic Tacs subsequently have sustained ontological shock, ontological shift, anomalous capacities coming online for them, including precognition, um, other stuff under the umbrella there, such as remote viewing. And it begins to spread and you know they call this the hitchhiker effect it begins to to spread through family relationships and here is where coming back to buddhism and our lives as practitioners we really find this tandem unbreakable bind between interiority and exteriority to see one of these nuts and bolts objects triggers an avalanche event which registers on the interiority of the experiencer in an irreversible fashion and often, frankly, propagates from there into their marriages, their kids, their, their relatives. This is like super classic leg bone connected to the ankle bone <laughs> kind of situations. Like this stuff doesn't stay in the tube well at all. And if you're a person who's running a Navy carrier with nuclear weapons and you have been, oh, by the way, so the Tic Tac uh, as a precipitating event for this slow motion disclosure that we're seeing uh, and this public facing narrative where it's like, hey, there's been times where these pilots have interacted with these Tic Tacs. That is a fucking farce. The truth is, and everyone behind the curtain knows this and is talking about it. The truth is those Tic Tacs have harassed those groups essentially every day for years. So we have whole sections of our military trying to function, protecting the country off the coast. I mean, like, God, and God, I'm an artist. If you think there's anyone who gives less of a shit about military stuff, it's, I don't know anyone. I'm, I'm, not, I'm a circus freak. I don't care about this. Like, it's not an area of interest for me. Until you start to feel the human component of what it means to be a person working as a pilot, working as, a, as an aircraft, highly sensitive positions within our military, these carrier groups that are contending with completely fucking unworkable antagonism from something that they don't know what it is, they don't know where it comes from, and they have no meaningful response to. And we're still in the nuts and bolts territory. When you get into the, the mid-range of that spectrum, 
when you start to work with and feel your way into the lives of experiencers who are, for, for instance, abductees, who are not only not mentally ill and not delusional and not sick, but are some of the highest functioning, brilliant, sensitized people that I've ever met in my life. And I've met hundreds of them now. Um, there's been a lot of work done on trying to precisely control for the fact of like how much of the abduction phenomenon, which is cross-cultural, which is more than a half a century old, which has involved millions of human beings, which follows bloodlines, which follows genetic profiles among families, how much of that can be accounted for by psychopathology? Less than for a control group in the public. Less than if you took a random sample of the public, experiencers actually have a lower profile controlled for that random sampling from the public as it comes to psychopathology. And, you know, what's tough about this in part um, emotionally is that this stuff has been known for a long time. You know, what's, what's difficult with getting that glimpse behind the curtain and getting to know these folks that are doing their damnedest, like, again, honest to God, it's like, I'm a artist and a circus freak, but I've gotten to know quite a few of these folks working in these programs and these agencies. And they're just like good people trying to do their best. And uh, one thing that we talk about a lot on the show that's come up in conversations is that, you know, our, our institutions were never designed to deal with any of this shit. They are so mismatched. We're putting bureaucracies up against the most exotic, strange, weird shit that humans experience, and it doesn't work. And so what the natural response of these institutions has been is like, if you don't have a good chess move, don't make a chess move. If you don't have a good response to the nature of these problems, keep it, keep the levels down, right? Like try to create as much runway as you can for yourself to hopefully behind the scenes recalibrate and acquire new responses. But um, this touches back with Buddhism. This touches back with our lives as practitioners. So I feel like one way we've been confused is that because of the successes of our material last century, because of our technological advancements and the immediate gratification we have seen with that, with that in various aspects of our lives, we got confused about what works. And the thing with the phenomenon, which I'll just use as a big umbrella term that includes all of these non-human entities, all of these presences and their various manifestations, the reason that's backfiring right now is that actually our best response is interiority. Actually, our best response is the high road of consciousness. It's, it's decency, and nothing could more perfectly exemplify and embody that than the Bodhisattva's vow. So to a little bit cut to the chase around why I think Buddhism, but our traditions in general, 
all of them have these kinds of resources, are sadly unemployed with this puzzle is that functionally, when we see a change in the behavior of the non-human entities themselves is when the deepest, best part of our human lineages are called upon and enacted. So I'll tell you, as someone who works with experiencers one-on-one in these, and in groups and support groups, you know, we did, we've done 140 support groups with uh, eight to 20 people in each support group in the past 14 months. Before that, going back 25 years, uh, I knew and know hundreds of experiencers. You know, I was friends with John Mack in the 90s and through him was brought into this world and sort of taken under his wing and so had access for going back that far. And that's kind of amplified over time. But when experiencers come to us and they're seeking a way to try to get a better life, right? So all of the things we naturally would feel as human beings around, you know, tough emotional stuff, like what does this mean for my kids? What does this mean for um, my agency, my autonomy? Human, human sovereignty as that powerful native endowment that comes with a human soul, but also begins to feel more quizzical and befuddling as you begin to contend with things like, oh man, like, holy shit, there's other beings here and they're not humans and they have, you know, start to edge our way over toward the mid and other end of the spectrum. The entities themselves pass through physical objects. The entities themselves can dilate and compress our experience and perception of time. The entities themselves fundamentally communicate telepathically have uh what you know maybe a a close analogy in our quantum mechanics would be the enchained enjoined polarity across all time and space uh which i'm forgetting the term for at the moment um when when two subatomic particles interact and then they maintain at any rate the entities have a connection with the experiencers and the abductees in which it doesn't proximity doesn't matter doesn't come into play. So experiencers and abductees navigating their way through all of this weird shit going on, still raising kids, still holding down a job, still trying to not be committed to an institution, and then facing what is currently the big ultimate cosmological riddle, which is what the fuck is happening? Who are these beings? And this is going on for decades. What works? What makes a difference? So back to this confusion that I feel we're currently suffering from culturally, which is our response, gut reaction, like, let's make some new tech. You see a ton of this going on. Let's recover the craft. Let's reverse engineer whatever this exotic technology is that allows these craft and beings to have the facility that they do. And I think that, sadly, which is borne out a bit through the work with experiencers, that's, that's the wrong lane. The right lane is over here 
with finding and claiming our sovereignty, anchoring it in practice, and anchoring that practice in goodwill and intention for the liberation of all beings. And that that high road, that's the high road. When people start to take the high road and when experiencers become experiencer practitioners and they make the shift from passive overwhelm to agency, sovereignty, but sovereignty and agency that is rooted also in communion. And that's where the Bodhisattva's vow comes in, which is that we also know cosmologically that whatever this is that is arriving, emerging in our experience and engaging with us in such an intimate fashion, this great sentience that presides in these interactions, that these are sentient beings. And that as difficult and it is difficult, it's really difficult, these relationships are. They're every bit as difficult as human relationships are with all these attendant exotic qualities. They're still sentient beings. And what I have noted over years is that when experiencers become experiencer practitioners, then they begin to implement whatever their version of the Bodhisattva's vow is, the deepest register of their soul seeking the goodness and freedom of all beings, as oppositional, as problematic, as confusing and disorienting as these relationships are, that's what actually makes the beings behave differently. So this will put us into a a segment of this enigma that is very interesting and that I don't have the answers to, but nonetheless, I feel probably intuitively will come up in our conversation. And that is the nature and degree to which our being, our ontology, our response and energy to the phenomena determines its behavior with us. I don't have the answers here, but I will say that like a lot of shitty things tend to happen when this this old impulse, this behavior, this pattern, this, this sort of fetish we have with weaponizing weaponizing. We're going to go into Skinwalker Ranch and we're going to do all of these empirical studies so that we can extract information and weaponize it and apply it within our militaries. The antagonism is tremendous in many of those situations. I don't think this is perfect. I don't think it's totally poetically perfect. However, I will say that as the behavior and deep intent of the experiencer modulates toward love and the bodhisattva's vow, a great deal of the phenomenon modulates with the experiencer. And this is where we get into a really interesting zone with experiencers, which uh, I'm, I'm kind of proffering this as a strong possibility. I don't know if it's the case or not, but one thing that I've felt to be pretty strong and consistent is that the phenomenon and the intelligence of these presences. And again, here I'm sort of talking about the abduction contact end of the puzzle that it has less of an interest in our interpretation of it. And it has more of an interest in the modification of the interpreter. There seems to be 
a way that ontological shock is skillfully applied and induced, which seems to be anchored in the interest of altering the subjectivity of the experiencer. And this I find really fascinating. You know, there's a, there's a way this intelligence behaves that has a continual invitation, almost like it's continually inviting us toward ourselves. And the rough end of that neighborhood is that a lot of that shit is super traumatic. And it's multidimensional in the sense that often experiencers who initially come to the work feeling that the trauma and shock that they've gone through was debilitating and negative, find that transmuted in slow motion over time. And they end up some of the most sensitive, amazing beings you could ever wish to be with. And then their interpretation modulates, their interpretation shifts as they do. And in a way that I don't really understand, this intelligence seems to have a kind of superhero skill for this particular dynamic, which is finding a place to put a magnet that's going to pull us toward a deeper, higher version of ourselves. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.